I am Puneet Kurana with my very good friend Manish Thawan and together we bring you Stoic Podcast Series. This series is started as an initiative by stoicinvesting.com to bring the best minds of investing to teach their wisdom irrespective of their investment style or philosophy. Learn the various viewpoints, choose the nuggets and then develop or enhance your own investing style. We have a very special guest for this podcast today. He's a man who loves reading and we sincerely cherish it ourselves. He loves listening to music and he plays chess. But most importantly, he loves reading about companies. A man of few words and we are glad that we have forced a lot more words than we were hoping for. We are glad to present Rajiv Thakkar of PPFAS Mutual Fund who diligently is carrying forward the legacy of late Mr. Parag Parekh. Please sit back and enjoy our conversation with him. First of all, a very warm welcome uh, to the show and thank you for taking out the time for the interview. Uh, uh, pl- pleasure being with you. Thanks for having me. To start with, uh, can you give us a brief about yourself, Rajiv, uh, for, for our audience, your background, introduction to this industry maybe, and your days spent with legendary Parag Parekh? Okay. Uh, so, as such, I've been a Mumbaiite uh, all throughout, born and brought up in uh, Bombay. Uh, basic education was uh, uh, in terms of commerce graduation, chartered accountancy, cost accountancy, and later on CFA. The reason for interest in the financial markets was, I think, twofold. So, one, my father has been an equity investor uh, since... Uh, 80s. So uh, when I was about seven, eight years old, I would see uh, annual reports coming in uh, at home, and uh, okay. uh, one had that grounding uh, meaning uh, investing in companies and so on. And he was an investor in the true sense, meaning buy and hold kind of person, not a trader. Uh, of course, he did not have any uh, sophisticated framework, or he had not. Uh, read Benjamin Graham or anything like that but his basic uh, idea was in terms of buying shares and uh, hanging on to them right and uh, uh, as I was uh, graduating so my graduation year was 92 and uh, that was the time when uh, the Harshad Mehta uh, frenzy for equities and all of that was there also um, that was the time when the country uh, flirted with uh, bankruptcy and then uh, we went out and uh, opened up our economy and things like that. So uh, the message from my family to me was complete your education, (coughs) you have sustaining power and then do what you want kind of thing. So that was the reason for doing chartered accountancy. But uh, the lure for financial markets in terms of uh, a place where something exciting is happening and where uh, wealth can be created was there. Uh, there was a Pied Piper who was drawing a lot of people in. Right. So that's uh, how I uh, ended up in the financial markets. So, so Rajiv, was your uh, first job directly into equity markets and uh, who all you started your career with? Uh, okay, so uh, I graduated in 92 and uh, one has to do a three-year uh, training period for chartered accountancy right. and one can do three years with a chartered accountancy firm or one can do two years and do the third year in a uh, manufacturing or a financial company. Right. So 
I did two years uh, of chartered accountancy and third year itself I <laughs> ran away to a financial firm. I joined <laughs> Prime Securities as a trainee. So uh, Prime Securities is uh, nowhere at the top these days, but in those days it was a company promoted by Great Eastern Shipping and had was well capitalized for its time and was in investment banking and stock brokerage and uh, proprietary trading and various things. So uh, uh, that was where I started off. So 94 to uh, 99 I was there. Uh, two years after that I was uh, doing... Uh, so in Prime Securities I was in various fields. Uh, uh, in merchant banking doing IPOs, uh, corporate finance, doing uh, some fixed income securities and so on. Uh, mm-hmm. 99 to 2001, again, I was doing fixed income securities with another broker, uh, Pimal Gandhi. And uh, 2001 is when I joined uh, Paragbhai, when I joined uh, PPFAS. So, so before before PPFAS, uh, you had an exposure in almost everything from bonds to equities. Or equities yes. didn't happen at that time. Uh, so, uh, equities, I was not uh, running a book, but right. uh, the... Uh, IPO process was uh, in terms of understanding a company, valuing it, uh, talking to the promoters, then talking to the investors as to why uh, an investment makes sense and things like that. Also interacting with the research team. So equities was part of it and uh, bonds also. So both sides of the spectrum. So in equities, you were on the other side where you you learn what not to do later on. Basically IPOs. (laughs) That's correct. So... uh, in IPOs, uh, I was not responsible for uh, staking out our money, right. but uh, I had a ringside view of what was happening on the prop book. So there, uh, like Munger says, you should learn not to pee on an electric fence by <laughs> <laughs> watching others. Right. So uh, right. it was a company which used leverage uh, to buy equities and when equities went down there was trouble because interest meter kept ticking and there were principal losses and things like that. So I saw what uh, leverage or what derivatives can do uh, to investments So or can do to your uh, capital. So how not to do permanent loss of capital was something that I learned there you can say. Mm-hmm. And Rajiv tell me one thing at that time I remember the interest rates used to be very high so uh, was equity considered to be as good an alternative to debt as it is considered now? So that was primarily the reason uh, for moving to uh, debt on my part so okay. uh, this was uh, mid to late 90s so uh, 1994, 1995 uh, you had a government uh, borrowing money at 14% per annum wow. and you had uh, AAA corporate names uh, borrowing at 18% per annum oh boy. and you had uh, the likes of uh, Sardar Sarovar, Nigam and uh, uh, NDFCs like Reliance Capital and all that mm-hmm. giving 21% uh, rates to the uh, depositors. Wow. So Given those kind of rates and uh, given the fact that bond market was uh, at a very nascent stage then, uh, I felt that there was something interesting going on uh, in the bond markets. So, while I keep saying uh, market timing is not such a great thing to do, right. uh, but uh, but uh, 
I joined uh, bonds in uh, 95 and mm-hmm. I was in bonds till uh, 96 and I was in bonds till 2003 and that was the biggest uh, bond run uh, period bull run in the bonds mm-hmm. and uh, when I came in equities in 2003 that was the beginning of a bull run for equities after 11 <laughs> so so, so uh, you, you timed I, it very well uh, for your yeah, career by too. sheer yeah by sheer accident i <laughs> timed both the moves well great so what are you doing now <laughs> <laughs> i am still in equities so i let you know if uh, i move to some other asset class <laughs> okay uh, you know talking about asset classes uh, let me ask this question which is in my mind for a long time uh, when parak sir and you guys decided to go into mutual funds what hmm. was the decision there why mutual funds why not a pms or a aif route or you know um, that kind of a structure aif was sure. not there but yeah pms at least what would have been an option sure aif also the early uh, signs were there that it would it was coming up so yeah, yeah. that also was an alternative sure uh, so uh, for quite some time uh, we have be, we had been uh, hitting up against the wall in terms of uh, having issues in the pms structure now as such both are different vehicles to participate in the same asset class of equities uh, but there were some changes which happened so for one uh, for the clients the entry level went up from 5 lakhs to 25 lakhs so uh, the potential client base shrunk uh, dramatically once that uh thing was increased also onboarding clients was difficult so at that point in time uh to onboard a pms client one would require a new bank account new dmat account new brokerage agreement custody agreement pms agreement and uh, it would take anywhere between let's say 60 65 signatures for a resident client to 100 signatures for a nri client uh so onboarding clients was difficult and it would take its own time so you couldn't do everything simultaneously you needed to open the bank account first only then the dmat account would get opened and on, so on so it would sometimes take a month to onboard a client right. that was a second issue uh again as such the law is clear if you are a investor in equity and if you hold shares for more than a year your capital gains are tax exempt uh but uh, at that time there was this term uh, tax terrorism which was coined and things like that so if, uh tax guys had a target to meet and uh, they would say no no this is your business income and uh, try and force uh, clients to pay up some tax and then clients would get it back on appeal and things like that right uh, so for various reasons uh Uh, there were some uh, hurdles in the pms space uh, mutual fund that way was uh, something which was scalable so uh, in pms we started with somewhere about 30 uh, 35 clients when uh, i took over in 2003 right. we had gone up to about 650 clients so uh, each client requires one more uh, dmat account to be reconciled bank account to be reconciled audit to be done and so on mm-hmm. so as we were scaling with we felt that mutual fund would be a better vehicle to uh, manage investments okay Un- understood right so rajiv you said you decided on the mutual fund uh, uh, route i i wanted to know you know in an age where mutual funds have 
around tens and hundreds of schemes these days to lure their customers. Uh, you guys have just been consistent with one. Yes. Uh, my first question is, uh, I would like to know the rationale behind that. Uh, and then I'll come to the second question later. Uh, but first, can, can we have the rationale behind it? Sure. So, uh, see, I'm sure uh, there may be reasons for maybe having more than one schemes. Sometimes the asset class may be different or sometimes the strategy may be different. But in our case, uh, firstly, we are focusing on equity right now. So we are not into uh, fixed income security. So right. uh, that's one reason why we have an equity scheme. Also, uh, many a times the schemes which have been launched in the past by some people have been driven by what will sell in the market rather than uh, there being a sound investment rationale for that. Right. So if you look at the past, uh, wherever there were some sectors or themes which were uh, giving good returns in the marketplace, you would see a lot of schemes getting launched in that space. Exactly. So at the time of technology, you had the uh, tech funds getting launched and in 2006-7, you had infra, commodity, real estate uh, funds coming up. Right. So uh, our thing is that if the scheme that you are running has flexibility to go across market cap, across sectors, and in our case, even across geographies to uh, the extent of 35%. So in which case, there's no reason to come out with a flavor of the month kind of scheme. Whatever opportunities are there in the marketplace, you can avail of in that single scheme that you are running. Right. So that's been our logic. Uh, we have kept the mandate flexible and uh, uh, any opportunity which comes our way, we are well of that in this uh, single scheme. And uh, again, I even have a, or we even have this philosophical question that if an investor is sophisticated enough to sift through maybe 600, 700 schemes and uh, then select one, then that investor probably is uh, capable enough to select Stocks. Uh, stocks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> individual stocks. So I come to a mutual fund in that case. True. True. And my second question is related to that, Rajiv. Uh, I would like to know if this ethical behavior uh, has hurt sales for you. I mean, I'll tell you what I mean. Uh, yeah. You know, if you have 50 schemes, hmm. of them would do well invariably as the luck would have it, law of averages. Yes. And from there on, you can simply beat that trumpet to generate sales, forgetting about the laggards. Whereas if you have just one scheme, all of a sudden the spotlight is on on you, on that one scheme. And so your accountability increases many folds. True. So uh, that will remain for a while, but I think uh, gradually people are becoming smarter. People are uh, realizing that there's a thing called uh, survivorship bias and things like that or... Uh, a lot of people have uh, burnt their hands. So we have seen an era where a close-ended fund was trading at a huge premium in grey market uh, when it was launched. A 10 rupee unit uh, was trading at 20 rupees even before the scheme started investing. So people have gone through all of that and I think people are now realizing uh, that uh, just having NFOs uh, does not really add to investment performance. 
so we are happy to be uh, under scrutiny we are happy to be answerable to people and uh, also since uh, our own investments are here uh, mainly we are doing it for the joy of investing it's something that we love doing and uh, we want like minded people to be with us so uh, the right. goal is not necessarily to be the biggest and uh, i don't uh, think or i don't expect that we will uh, among the top 5 or top 10 anytime soon sure. Uh, sure but aj tell me one thing so when a when a client comes to you invariably sometimes it will be in his interest for him to be you know diversified between debt and equity so sure. do you take that kind of a uh, uh, that kind of a advice into account and then you know uh, divert him to good good debt funds or how does it work because you are purely equity so how does it work for you when you are recommending a client Sure. So uh, we are not in the debt space, and anyone who has an allocation for fixed income should, uh, to the extent of that allocation, look at third-party products, be it uh, uh, fixed income mutual funds or tax-free bonds or whatever suits the particular client. Right. We are happy to uh, recommend uh, third-party uh, mutual fund products to right. uh, such clients. Uh, we surely think that. Uh, especially for certain clients of an advanced stage or people who uh, need regular income uh, should have a fixed income allocation and uh, equity as an asset class is not for uh, generating month to month cash flow hmm. so in fact for that reason in our equity scheme we don't even have a dividend plan uh, because having that plan would create expectations or would create uh, an impression among people that oh you can put money here and expect a regular return from uh, this asset class right so i think uh, we are clearly not here to offer fixed income products as of date and uh, we are happy to recommend third party products understood right right in fact not just the dividend i also noticed that uh, you set the expectations pretty uh, very beautifully by uh, making sure that the client who joins in uh joins in for at least 3 uh, or 5 years right 5 years minimum 5 right. years yes right right, right. right. so uh, so uh, you are very clear on the fact that you are okay to lose the size when it comes at a cost you know uh, and for the simple factor that you want to have a lock in period and simultaneously you don't want to go beyond equities which you clearly understand very well yeah so uh, we don't have a lock in period per se right uh, clients can redeem if they want but okay. we clearly say that it's not suitable for people uh who have investment horizon for less than 5 years and just so, out of curiosity how many people actually withdraw uh, beforehand uh so it's not a very large number i don't have the number off hand okay. but it would be less than maybe 5% of the clients by wow. wow. uh, 7% oh that is that is not a uh, industry uh, uh yes. normal so what we have done is uh at a time when many people uh, have uh, zero ex- exit loads we have put in uh, a 2% exit load for exit in the first year and uh, 1% exit load if it happens between 1 and 2 years okay. uh, now this load does not come to us as asset managers that load goes back to the scheme and it's uh, for the remaining investors people who stayed in so it penalizes market timers and people who come in and go out frequently and it uh, rewards people who stay for the longer term that's uh, nice to have rajiv is that a industry practice or is it only you you guys are doing this 
So exit load, wherever it is there, has to be plowed back into the scheme across the industry. Sure, sure. But a lot of people to attract clients uh, say that oh, uh, we don't have any exit load, so you can come and go out anytime. Right. So, uh, we have felt that uh, giving that kind of a message actually encourages some short-term money. So uh, just uh, as a thought experiment or whatever, uh, if you were to enter and exit mid-cap stocks uh, directly, uh, you would pay some impact cost, you would pay brokerage, you would pay SCT. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you were to do the same in a uh, equity fund with no exit load, then you would avoid all of that and you could market time in a mutual fund. So uh, without any short-term exit load, uh, mutual funds can potentially become a magnet for market timers <laughs> where they can come and go out and take event. ETFs ETF serve, serve that purpose in, in US at least. True, true. That's true. Right. So, uh, you know, as he, he bought in US, I wanted to ask one thing. Uh, you guys have a very substantial portion towards US, I think close to 25% in last filing. Yes. Um, so, uh, I wanted to ask, and this was a question shared by a couple of people. What is, what do you think your, where do you think your edge comes from when you invest in US markets, considering the fact that you have been in Indian markets for a long period of time, and over a period of time you have understood the businesses, and all that stuff. Where do you think your edge in US comes from? And then why is such a huge allocation to such a huge market? Sure. So uh, typically people say that if you are a resident of that country or if you uh, are in that market, you would have a edge over the others. So uh, for example, we should be having an edge in Indian stocks and someone residing in the US should have an edge in US stocks. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when we look at it that way, then uh, if we take that logic for, uh, forward, then each person should invest in their own market and should not go across the borders. So FI should not be coming here and we should not be going to the US markets. Or one should have uh, local asset managers in every country that you are investing in. Right. So, uh, so uh, when we are going to US, we are not uh, investing in any uh, niche company in US. Right. Uh, and let me give you an example. Uh, let us say a Westerner is investing in India. Now, for that person to understand a company like Dabur or to understand a company like Marico mm. is very difficult. Like uh, a Westerner will not understand what a Chavan Prash is or uh, why people put uh, heaps of coconut oil in their hair. <laughs> it's not a it's not a cultural phenomenon in the West. Uh, similarly, if we are investing in the US, some niche US business, I would not be able to understand. But essentially, when we are investing abroad, we have said that we will invest only in countries with English language reporting. That is number one. Okay. Number two, we will invest only in uh, countries where there is a strong... Uh, governance mechanism where there's a history of protection of shareholder rights where accounting is fine audit standards are great so we are not going to uh, russia china brazil all over the place it's essentially either u.s uh, based multinationals or european companies western european companies okay and the companies where we have invested in are companies with which we are familiar so if you are investing in nestle india the business that Nestle's parent company does is very similar to the 
business that Nestle does in India or uh, if we are investing in let's say uh, IBM or Google or Apple, we know what those companies do. We know what 3M does or what a UPS does. It's not that we require uh, any special insight into these companies. And with technology, we are able to access their uh, investor communications almost simultaneously as uh, US locals uh, have access. So whether it's a investor presentation or a conference call, we are able to participate in those. So we don't think that it's so much of a disadvantage uh, uh, investing from here. What it does is uh, many a times it gives you uh, a perspective. You can compare and contrast those companies with our companies. Sometimes a whale of valuation arbitrages uh, have some diversification which reduces overall uh, portfolio volatility and you don't go all over the place and things like that. So uh, see also today whether we like it or not we are in a globalized world. So if you are buying Tata Motors, you are anyway buying into Jaguar Land Rover. Right. So you need to be aware of what is happening in the European car market. If you are buying Tata Global Beverages, you are uh, buying into Tetley. You are buying Indalco, you are buying Novelis. Uh, so as such, we are globalized. Even uh, let's say uh, our IT or pharma companies have a huge uh, amount of exports to uh, Western markets. Uh, if you are looking at Infosys, uh, the pro TCS, you should be aware of what is happening with Cognizant. So sure. even otherwise, you have to track uh, what is happening overseas. Right. Sure. So, in fact, you know, we were having this conversation with Mebain Faber of Cambria Funds, and he, he shared the same thing. He said, you know, something like uh, overseas investment is almost uh, almost a must because that removes the home country bias and gives sanity to your portfolio. True. Right. Uh, so, Rajesh, tell me one thing. How do you uh, hedge your currency risk in, at all? If at all, you could. Sure. So, about 90% of the uh, value of the underlying portfolio, right. uh, we hedge uh, using uh, exchange-traded futures contracts. Okay. Uh, so, let's say if we have a million dollars worth of uh, exposure to U.S. stocks, uh, we sell nine hundred thousand dollars in the futures market in India. Okay. So, what, what kind of cost does does, does that come to this hedging? Uh, actually, that's the interesting part. So, uh, a foreigner who invests in India and who has to hedge the currency risk hmm. has a cost. And when we are investing overseas and when we hedge the currency risk, we get an income out of it. So, we get an income of about uh, five to six percent on an annualized basis. Oh, interesting. So, interesting. In fact, you know, I was just going through the Infi uh, results today and I came to know that even they ended up making a profit through that hedging. But that's not guaranteed all the time, right? There can be losses at times too. No, so I'll explain how this works. Yeah, please. Uh, say interest rates in India are 7% and interest rates overseas are, let's say, 1%. Right. So there's an interest rate differential and the futures market are priced in such a way that there is no arbitrage. Right. So, given the fact that Indian interest rates are higher than international interest rates, rupee will trade at a discount in the futures market. If the spot dollar rupee is, let's say, 67, uh, a one-year uh, futures dollar rupee would trade at, let's say, 71 or mm. 72, mm. 
wherever it's trading. So Understood. this price is available uh, on the NSE website and so on. Right. So let us say you do nothing else. You just buy one dollar today for sixty-seven rupees, and you sell one dollar in the futures market right. at seventy-one. Right. You keep that one dollar in the current account abroad, and after one year you bring it back. So you get that four rupees or five rupees on the uh, futures discount that rupee trades. Right. We do that same thing, and but <coughs> instead of keeping that money in the current account. we go and buy equity shares from that Understood. $1 so uh, we hedge out the currency risk we are not uh, to the extent of 90% we are not concerned whether uh, rupee appreciating or depreciating we have no uh, underlying strong view on the currency per se we get the dividend yield wherever it's a dividend paying stock so uh, some companies like nestle have a 2 and a half 3% dividend yield and if you end up making Let's say five six percent on uh, the currency hedge, and you get whatever between seven to nine percent uh, fixed income like return on the underlying equity share, and whatever capital appreciation depreciation comes is over and above that. So of course dividend yields change over time, uh, forever discount will change over time, but this is as it prevails today. Uh, and uh, to your question, that uh, does it always work in this fashion? So as long as Indian interest rates are higher than overseas interest rates. Rupee will always trade at a discount in the futures market. How much discount will depend on interest rate differential. Sure. So, in theory, if let's say Indian uh, interest rates were to come down to one percent and overseas interest rates are also one percent, then there will be parity. The spot exchange rate and the futures exchange rate will. Trade at the same level, so it really depends on the interest rate differential. But given that inflation in India is higher than global inflation, given that uh, our interest rates are higher, this relation has held true for at least as far as I can remember, last twenty, thirty years, forty years. No, so Rajiv, if I understand this correctly, uh, this relationship is not based on interest rate differential. but the timing of that interest rate differential is it so there can be a situation where you are caught on the wrong side of the trade if for that particular timing for which you are holding the contract uh, the rupee is appreciating or depreciating no it's it's not so it's basically today what is the one year interest rate for us dollar deposits and what is the one year interest rate for a rupee dollar rupee deposit as long as our interest rates are higher than overseas interest rates we will be trading at a discount in the futures market so uh, very simply you can uh, go on the browser go to the website check out the current uh, interbank rate for dollar rupee mm-hmm. and on nse's website check out the one year Uh, contract rate and uh, that difference is positive. So as long as you are doing both legs simultaneously, there should not be any impact on uh, where the exchange rate moves over a period of time. Understood. Oh. I think what you're saying is, Manish, uh, there will be an impact on the quantum of the return they're going to get out of it, but it might not be um, on the negative side. Am I right, Ajay? Uh, so the extent of the discount or uh, discount will vary so sometimes you may get uh, 5 6% sometimes you may get 3 or 4% yeah, yeah, that's but you you do get that uh, uh, return 
Fair enough. So that compensates for you investing into U.S. equities also, which inherently has a lower equity return compared to Indian markets. That's correct. So uh, people compare dollar returns and rupee returns, but that's not the uh, right way to look at it. You have to uh, take it in a uniform currency right. both ways. Mm. Uh, so that's the correct way uh, to look at it. Right. So Rajiv, right. so uh, ju- just to give you an example, yeah. I've just pulled. Uh, the data on my screen. Yeah. So uh, on the National Stock Exchange platform, uh, today's rates uh, for dollar rupee one year out are seventy point seventy eight. Okay. Okay. And the spot is sixty seven point whatever foot uh, ten twelve wherever the rupee is. So sixty seven point zero six. Yeah. Yeah. So. If right now you buy at sixty-seven point zero six, and if you sell one year out <clears throat> without doing anything, you can get this spread. Okay. Hmm. Hmm. Understood. Uh, Rajiv, at uh, at your mutual fund, uh, what what is your modus operandi for stock selection? I mean, I know the fund follows the tenets of value investing, but within that, what is the subset? Do you look for cash bargains, Benjamin-style cigar butts? Or do you look for growth at reasonable prices? So this is more like uh, Munger and Fisher kind of value investing rather than uh, pure Benj- Benjamin Graham cigar butt kind of thing. Of course, we do have uh, a couple of stocks which are which could get classified as Benjamin Graham. But uh, see, what happens in India is that you don't have uh, too much of a uh, tradition of activist investing. Right. And Benjamin Graham kind of thing really would work if someone like Karl Icahn comes and uh, threatens the board or demands a board seat, saying, "Why are you holding on to so much cash, right. uh, throughout cash, or uh, this division is loss making, uh, or uh, discontinue these products and create value for shareholders?" There needs to be some catalyst for uh, a pure Grahamian approach to work, right. uh, and scenario where uh, the promoters own 50-60-70% of the company they don't really care for outside shareholders so if the business is inherently low return on capital business uh, even if it's a cash bargain you will never be able to touch the cash and uh, many a times what happens is instead of the price going up to intrinsic value Sometimes the intrinsic value falls below the share price if the capital is misallocated. Sure. So we are more towards buying quality companies at reasonable prices rather than uh, cigar butt investing in that sense. Uh, Rajiv, um, Rajiv, you just said that you know the activist investing is not very prominent in India, and um, there have been very very few cases in past where outside investors have tried to become activist. Um, even though slightly, I have an idea. But uh, can you briefly tell what you think is the main reason why we don't have activist investing, and I mean, how can it change if at all it can change? Fear of death, I say. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, how how it can it change if at all it can change? What what from regulatory side? What can be done? Do you have your point of views there? Uh, sure. So uh, there have been incremental changes over the years. Uh, I think these, uh, a lot of necessary conditions are coming in. Maybe it's still not reached a sufficient stage. So I think the first catalyst was uh, moving to a DMAT uh, kind of share uh, trading. Okay. Uh, so earlier 
in the physical shares when the buyer lodged the shares to the company for transfer the board of directors of a company could reject the transfer saying you don't want to allow you to buy the shares hmm. so uh, that is history now now anyone can go out and buy shares on the exchange and the company will be forced to transfer the shares uh, also you have these uh, thresholds where if you cross a certain percentage of shareholding you have to launch a open offer and things like that so those conditions are there and one would say that we are ripe for uh, activist investing kind of thing uh, again new companies act uh, allows uh, or requires a lot of uh, related party transactions to be put to vote where promoters cannot vote on the resolution and things like that hmm. uh, cbi has made it mandatory for mutual funds to vote on resolutions and uh, disclose their actions on the website Hmm. so all those are positive developments you have shareholder advisory services three of them uh, launching in india and uh, making recommendations so i think final stumbling block is the high promoter stakes so no amount of activism is going to work if the promoter owns 75% of the company so hmm. with uh, maybe 10 15 20% how much can you influence the decision sure so uh, what we have seen in india is uh, value unlocking happening where uh, the second third generation of the promoters the family does not get together well and they split the company and go their own way and uh, some unlocking happens that's what we have seen in india so far uh, we still haven't come to a situation where the promoters own maybe <coughs> only 5 10 20% percent and then you have these corporate traders and activists coming in sure so rajiv let's uh, you know uh, for the benefit of the listeners as well as for our own benefit let's just go through the complete process you go through while selecting a particular stock right so you said quality at reasonable price is what you look for so sure. do you do you use any kind of quantitative screens for that or by the very share network of people you are in touch with your screening process has gone down how has it, the screening process for the companies evolved over the years you have worked sure so the starting point uh, for a company getting into a consideration list can come to come through various uh, routes so uh, one way would be we are running a screener on all the companies and something looks interesting that is one way a company could come to us the other is uh, we track what uh, other investors are doing investors who we respect and uh, if they have done some portfolio actions in terms of buying certain companies we would uh, look at what's happening there it could be a media article where uh, someone is profiled or interviewed or some story comes out it could, starting point could be anything uh, in terms of the parameters uh, there are qualitative parameters and quantitative parameters so qualitatively uh, firstly we want some background of the promoter so if it's the unknown promoter entity coming out with the ipo we would give it a pass wait for uh, their behavior uh, as a listed company to be there with uh, the people for some time and then consider investing uh, otherwise if the promoter group is well known uh, and they have had a good history of treating minority shareholders well then that would come under consideration so management quality promoter quality is the first filter sure. which is essentially of a qualitative nature uh, quantitatively we would want a good return on capital 
low debt, uh, decent amount of uh, sales growth where there is potential for the company to grow rather than to be uh, a static kind of thing. Right. So those are the kind of uh, filters we would run and then uh, you'd narrow down the overall uh, list of companies under consideration. And uh, even companies with good promoters, good management and uh, good business characteristics, uh, most of the time these companies are expensive. So uh, typically one would watch these and if for some reason they are available at attractive valuation, would uh, go out and buy those. Sure. So, Rajiv, a lot of things which you said in that particular statement, I have just noted down few questions. Uh, so, first thing you said is most of the time these companies are available expensive and that part is, well, clearly understood. Um, so, uh, I was going through your portfolio and you have some pharma companies going through FDA troubles and yes. a tire company with uh, a huge amount of negative growth for some time now and problems in Europe. So, uh, not negative growth, but yeah, stagnant growth. So, uh, so are you looking for uh, those temporary trouble kind of situations to buy into? Or um, are you still willing to pay premium for quality and buy them at their normal, you know, routine prices and then just hoping for the business to keep on running the way it is running? So, wh- where, where do you line in the selection criteria? Sure. So, uh, opportunity can come in two forms. So, one is where a company is going through certain trouble. So, uh, in the international context or in terms of academic literature, uh, uh, Amex going through a salad oil kind of scandal uh, where you don't see uh, it as a life-threatening thing or you expect expect that the company will come out of its trouble uh, and it's a temporary thing. So that is one opportunity. The other opportunity set comes where the entire fancy is elsewhere. So the next big thing seems in a new sector and the market tends to ignore the consistent performers. So we have seen this happening in, let's say, the FMCG space in uh, late 90s, where everyone was chasing the uh, TMT or IC or whatever you call new economy. And old economy was not glamorous. We saw that again happening in 2006-2007 where uh, entire fancy was in infra, commodity and real estate. And again, you saw pharmaceutical companies getting ignored and uh, you saw FMCG companies being ignored. So, uh, sometimes there may not be any uh, company-specific trouble. It may just be that the uh, market fancy is elsewhere and you get opportunities there. Sure. Right. And, and other cases? So, uh, see, if the company is in a fancy valuation, then uh, it doesn't make sense, especially for people like us to buy into them or in some cases even hold on to the stock. Hmm. Uh, I'll give you an example. So, let's say, uh, without naming any particular company, hmm. let's say a company was at 20 times earnings. Hmm. Now, that company has been growing earnings consistently at 15-20%. But if the stock prices run up 5x, 10x in a short span of time and the company is now trading at let's say 70 times earnings or 80 times earnings, you cannot buy a company at any price or even hold on to a company Hmm. because in an open-ended structure, 
any client putting in money today is effectively buying the shares at the current valuation uh, you cannot then justify saying that oh my purchase price was uh, much lower so i am continuing to hold on to the stock then uh, wherever there is a possibility of a uh, big loss of capital uh, then you should move out of such companies so uh, we don't chase companies in that sense or we don't uh buy at very high valuations we are conscious of the price that we pay right right that is great so this is your uh, selection criteria rajiv uh what is your sell criteria uh when do you exactly sell and what is your average hold period so sell decision is always much more difficult than the buy decision so in buying you have uh selected quality promoters you have selected a uh, quality business and you have selected a attractive entry price now if things go right for you the first two things remain it remains a quality promoter it remains a quality business only thing that changes is the valuation and it becomes very expensive uh, again i am not in the camp that believes that intrinsic value is a point estimate intrinsic value is a big range of values so sure. you can say that intrinsic value is let's say between 100 and 200 rupees uh, i am not someone who says that intrinsic value is 125.36 rupees <laughs> you could you don't have that kind of precision so let's say if your valuation estimate was 100 to 200 rupees and you bought it at 60 now when it moves from 60 to 120 you can hold on 130 you can hold on but if it goes beyond 200 then obviously even at your most optimistic assumptions if uh, it starts looking overvalued then i think one is forced to sell so that is one kind of a sell decision if even your optimistic projections are met and stock is even quoting higher then one would be forced to sell the other sell decision is relatively easier where uh, it turns out to be a mistake uh, either your own mistake or because of industry or market developments where right uh, either the business is not as great as you thought it was or if the promoters start behaving funnily and doing actions which are uh, undertaking actions which are not minority shareholder friendly in which case one should sell out irrespective of whether one is making a profit or a loss and one should just sell it so rajiv uh, since you mentioned about mistakes can you take us through some of the mistakes you know especially on the front of analysis of business model so i'm i'm pretty sure psychological mistakes we keep on committing every now and then but mm. my question is primarily on the analysis of businesses can you explain with some examples where you have done uh, some mistakes which really hurted you in the portfolio sense sure so uh, looking at our own processes uh, i think one trend where uh, i've seen a recurring pattern uh, in my own mistakes and hopefully I'll in the future move away from pattern is wherever uh, there is some potential for government interference uh, things haven't worked out that great okay so uh, in the pms context uh, we were holding shares of the oil marketing companies uh, hpcl bpcl right. and we were lucky to uh, get out of the companies at close to our purchase price after two or three years of holding if we had held on longer we would have had capital losses and massive opportunity costs mm. uh, so those were public sector companies where the government uh, forced them to uh, 
buy their raw material at higher prices and uh, sell the finished goods at a lower price uh, another thing where there's no uh, financial loss per se or it's moderate here and there but there's a opportunity cost which has been noida toll bridge uh, which is there currently in our portfolio a uh, reason we are not selling is we think that it's already in the price but uh, essentially it's a infrastructure project mature infrastructure project that we had bought and uh, where the company has not been given toll increases which they are uh, which should come to them as per contract right. it's just that uh, the people in that vicinity protest or whatever and uh, politically the government finds it expedient not to allow a toll increase so essentially government drainage is on the contract so uh, i think in india especially uh, and again uh, i heard mr ramdev agarwal uh, again say this in a different context he said that uh, people sitting in delhi are socialists end of the day they it's not a capitalist country in that sense so where, wherever they can interfere or wherever they can tinker with Uh, they won't allow business people to earn a profit mm-hmm. and they would want people to get things uh, free so uh, i think wherever it's a psu or wherever it's a even a private sector company where government can interfere uh, with the pricing there is a potential for uh, so so uh, uh, your thing not working out so raji are you calling it a mistake primarily because you underestimated these points or i underestimated so uh, other than that it's worked as planned meaning uh, they have repaid whatever little debt they had when i purchased uh, they have started throwing out cash to the shareholders sure uh, the disappointment has been in terms of toll increases not coming in uh, as expected uh, so that is one uh, another uh, stock which hasn't worked out well for us has been in the investment management space so uh, this is island fs investment managers uh, where uh, the past record was fantastic and again the business model is scalable with the same team you can manage 5x the assets and get more fees and so on we got the cycle wrong and we underestimated the cyclicality so uh, the space where they were managing assets which is real estate assets and infrastructure assets both of them saw cycle peaking out and uh, the asset raising really stalled and even the exits got delayed things like that so these are a few stocks that haven't worked out uh, for us sure and and uh, rajiv do you also see other good investors who continue to make some kind of mistakes in assessing business risk so maybe something which you understand but you observe in other investors they on the business assessment side that they keep on making or they underestimate some risks um any such thing you have noticed well i'll speak for myself uh, <laughs> i'm happy to admit mistakes that i have made okay. i'm sure everyone makes their own mistakes uh, but i think in the indian context uh, uh, so again i've written an article in mint on this so uh, people talk about let's say uh, medical tourism for okay. example saying uh, hospitals in india undertake surgeries for a much lower cost as compared to overseas countries sure uh, and there's a big potential over there again it's a there's a possibility that uh, government could intervene in terms of pricing and things like that so uh, one has to be cognizant of that risk when uh, one is investing 
because anywhere uh, where there could be so called public interest or where uh, you can argue endlessly saying it's a free country the doctor is free to uh, price his services as he wants and things like that but ultimately if people uh, if there is a feeling that uh, public is suffering there could be price caps coming in or things like that so right, right. i think in india especially one has to be uh, aware of the public opinion and sentiment the pricing may not work out as one would expect fair enough so so rajiv let me ask your you know thoughts on valuation um so after you have evaluated the company how do you go about the valuation process do you think more in terms of multiples do you think more in terms of you know dcf kind of model where you uh, project the cash flows how does how what is your process so uh, regarding dcf i came across this uh, wonderful quote and at least uh, in terms of uh, my approach it applies right uh, perfectly so he says dcf is like the hubble telescope uh, <laughs> you move the telescope 1 inch yeah. and you are in a different galaxy <laughs> right so in dcf uh, so again another quote from uh, i don't know who but a brilliant quote uh, a person says that the uh, best software for writing fiction is it is it? not microsoft word but it is excel right so uh, depending on whether you assume a growth rate of 15% or 20% or 25% right or discount rate is uh, 12% or 8% or terminal growth rate is 3% or 7% you can get any dcf value that you want completely uh, and many a times when you do these big spreadsheet calculations you end up fooling yourself and possibly you are the uh, easiest person to fool so uh, right. you can fool yourself uh, because you will buy whatever argument you give yourself right someone else will ask you questions so uh, when i think about uh, valuation i want uh, i think stephen penman has put this uh, well mm-hmm. saying that in every stock there is a uh, true intrinsic value or true fundamental value and there is a element of speculative value right uh, the true uh, fundamental value would be the cash flows you can see in the near term meaning what is the present value of the assets on book what is the next 4 5 years 7 uh, 8 years of cash flow and the speculative value would be what you hope the uh, company will become it will grow its business it will expand it will enter new geographies and things like that right so you want to place as little uh, in the speculative category as possible you'll never uh, you can't overdo it so otherwise you'll never be able to buy any company right but effectively you want to not pay too much for uh, fantasies or not pay too much for uh, growth but you want the existing cash flows to support the current valuation to the to a large extent that's uh, the approach i would take i'm not too much into uh, long drawn out projections or dcf in that sense so is it fair to say that you look for uh, the built in growth in the prices and then do the reverse calculation if at all you're into calculations or you tend to go give away some kind of um, you know estimates on how much multiple the company should be trading and uh, so i'm still trying to figure out what exactly how do you pinpoint okay this is my fair price to buy this company at sure so uh, if if let's say one feels looking at the current market price that the market is pricing in only a maybe 5 to 10% growth right. whereas there could be a potential <coughs> of a 20% growth 
then obviously you are not paying too much for the stock. Uh, whereas in some cases it could be priced to perfection, saying market is already pricing in a 25-30% growth and uh, if the growth comes out to be 10%, then you would end up losing a lot of capital and only if uh, growth is let's say 30-35% would you end up making some money. So essentially you don't want to pay too much for uh, fantasies or for uh, huge numbers in growth. Understood. And um, you tell me one thing, once you have assessed the valuation and everything else, how do you decide your cash allocation, if at all you decide to keep in cash? And is market valuation a criteria while deciding the cash allocations? So, uh, approach is complete bottom-up. Uh, I don't have any view on uh, overall equity market movements. So, uh, it's not that in 2007 I had a... Uh, great insight that there would be a bankruptcy of Lehman Brothers in uh, the US next year or their sons would have problem and Merrill Lynch will have a problem. It's just that I was not able to understand what was happening with DLF Unitech and I was happy to buy uh, some FMCG companies and some pharma companies right. and uh, balance whatever one couldn't deploy was in cash. So it's a complete bottom-up approach. So. Uh, in fact, to give you a recent example, people would have thought that if Brexit happens, then it would be end of the world for equities and uh, <laughs> Brexit happened and today we are at uh, prices which are higher than pre-Brexit. Right. So, uh, there's no target cash allocation or there's no uh, macro view in that sense. Cash no. allocation would happen if there's some residual money. So, if I'm not getting opportunities or if I'm waiting for some opportunity or I, uh, there's still some work needed to be done on a particular company, it would lie in money market for some time. No, fair enough. But when I said market, uh, overall market levels, I'm not talking macro. But the mm. only point was the valuation of market. So, for example, you know, um, and this to contrast with uh, another mutual fund, uh, specifically I'm talking about IDFC, who mm. gave a PE-based, you know, uh, a tool yes. to investors to decide whether to put more money into markets or less money into markets. What is mm. your view there? Do you as an asset manager give any heed to market valuations? You may not obviously give a large amount of heed because you go bottom up, but do you take it into consideration for any any kind of... Uh, call. So what IDFC does is uh, it's obvious that if you buy when things are very cheap your return in the future years will be good and if you uh, buy when things are very very expensive then uh, obviously your returns uh, in the coming years would be uh, lower Sure. and you would have to end up holding uh, your investments for a longer period. Sure. Now this would be the right approach if one were doing, uh, one was doing index investing or large cap investing or one would broadly own the same stocks that uh, Nifty would have or uh, things like that. But if that those signals, those uh, green, yellow and red signals are coming from a Nifty valuation or from a Sensex valuation mm -hmm. and if your in, uh, individual investments are not part of that basket, then it would not be such a relevant uh, criteria. Sure. So, uh, again, uh, going back to 2006 or 7, uh, ITC, when Sensex was at uh, whatever, 17-18,000 was uh, available at somewhere around 160-162. And when uh, market went up and crashed at the time of uh, Lehman bankruptcy, mm. uh, index fell by more than half. Hmm. 
you saw ITC going up in that period. So if even at a uh, elevated market level, if you are getting bottom up stocks, which makes sense, one would go out and invest. Mm. Uh, same thing again at the time of dot com boom. Mm. So uh, Infosys or a Wipro was overvalued at that time, but the so-called old economy shares were available at attractive valuations. Mm. So uh, finally, I think again, what IDFC <coughs> does is if one is not getting opportunities, one should. Uh, shut the doors for uh, fresh investments. Uh, one should not collect more money from investors. I think that makes sense. Uh, and if one is not getting opportunities, one should be in cash temporarily. Sure. We are happy to do either of those two. But we don't go so much by index levels because uh, our mandate is much broader than the uh, just the Nifty or Sensex. So, but you're comfortable. So you drive your uh, risk management or the comfort levels by selling at premium valuations of the stocks you hold, rather than anything else. Is that a correct understanding? Yeah, that that's correct. Okay. Uh, so uh, another thing which you know um, I wanted to ask is that you mentioned that you read some media articles to come up with your uh, investment ideas. Would you be mm. uh, would you be willing to recommend few magazines which you think are good for every investor should be reading? I mean, besides the Economist or the World, any any magazine mm. specifically which you want to recommend? So uh, it would be the business magazines that are there, uh, rather than uh, looking at uh, magazines which give economic stuff or which give uh, political news, etc. Uh, or even uh, reading the daily business newspapers, I would. Uh, rather spend more time on uh, business magazines like let's say Forbes or uh, Business India or Business Today or uh, Outlook Business and things like that where different promoters, different companies are profiled, uh, their journey over 3-4-5 years is described, uh, their future plans are discussed, so things like that. Sure. Right. Raji, as you were giving the answer for uh, for the question uh, when when Puneet asked about your your way of selecting the stocks, I came to know and correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, your selection is lot less to do with the quantitative aspects of it, but uh, a lot of uh, qualitative and subjective in nature. Uh, I wanted to know, you know, value investing since it's not necessarily a science, and so decisions can be very subjective in nature. Uh, how do you ensure that the legacy continues? So, uh, it is also quantitative in a sense. Okay. Uh, it's a mix of quantitative and qualitative. So, would I invest in a business which has generated, let's say, 6% return on equity consistently for a decade and where I see a temporary upswing, but again, fundamentally, the business would not change. And that is ingrained in the team and uh, in the organization, meaning okay. we don't want uh, to invest in wealth-destroying businesses. Right. So uh, leverage, uh, return on capital, margins, all these are quantitative things. The place where quality comes into picture is that, one, there is a stress on uh, promoter quality, management quality, and we don't want to partner with people who... Uh, cheat minority shareholders or treat them badly. That is one qualitative aspect. And second is, uh, we don't do too much of detailed projections because then that gives you a false sense of comfort. Uh, meaning it gives you precision where none exists. So that's 
the art part of it. Uh, science, of course, is the uh, quantitative aspect, which is you don't want a very leveraged business or you don't want low return on capital businesses. Right, right. So, uh, as far as the team goes, uh, we interact quite regularly. Uh, we discuss each idea. So, uh, whenever an analyst has an idea to talk about, it's not one-on-one with me. We discuss it with the entire team. Uh, everyone puts forth uh, their point of view or uh, brings out their questions and we brainstorm it. So, uh, the thought process is shared with the entire team as to why some stock is there or not there in the portfolio. Yeah, but Rajiv, you know, uh, I was more concerned towards, I mean, my question was primarily how do you communicate the same thing to the investors? Primarily because, and asked the same question to Mr. Parikh also that day, that um, a mutual fund's process is not known to the world but the mutual fund manager is known to the world right so yeah. so a large amount of inflow essentially is an outcome of the reputation of the manager um, so for example Kenneth leaving IDSC or uh, the sudden and sad demise of Mr. Parekh uh, yeah. does that create two <coughs> troubles with investors internally I understand the team would know the process and everything else but how yeah. do you communicate this to the investors sure so uh, multiple things so uh, one is that uh, every year we have uh, what we call AGMs with uh, investors and <coughs> So these are not statutory meetings. Uh, there, there's no uh, SEBI mandate to do this or no compulsion to do this. But voluntarily we say that uh, one day in a year we will have our investment team, we'll have uh, the management team there to answer any and every question that an investor or a distributor partner has for us. Sure. So it could be on different stocks, it could be on outlook, it could be on uh, cash holdings or investment process and things like that. Sure. And uh, also at one of the places we record the session and we uh, put out those questions and answers on the web so that people who could not attend it in person uh, can figure out what transpired at the meeting. Sure. Uh, apart from this, we have uh, a monthly uh, session for a few Rotarians where we discuss various sectors and uh, companies. Uh, it may not necessarily be something which we have invested in. It could also be companies where we have not invested. So it gives some exposure to the thinking process that we have and uh, how we operate. So uh, wherever possible, we uh, try to keep those communication channels open and uh, ensure that only the like-minded people come in and people uh, know the process rather than the individuals. Right, great. So next time when you're you're doing this in Delhi, please let us know. We'll be glad to be a part of that. Sure. So as of now, the three cities are uh, Mumbai, uh, Bangalore and Chennai. And uh, the reason for this injustice to Delhi? (laughs) (laughs) So uh, the thing is completely in the hands of Delhi. Uh, What we do is we go to the top three markets in terms of number of clients and it just happens that these are the three top cities for us as of date so a lot more people from Delhi will have to become unit holders for us to (laughs) shift from one of the markets. A lot of traders in Delhi rather than value (laughs) investors. We do have clients from Delhi but as of now uh, it's at number four so there is some amount of then I think uh, you should start doing four top four cities rather than top three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll do that. Maybe sure, we'll do sure. That. 
Great, Rajiv. It was pleasure talking to you. Thanks a lot, uh, Manish. Any questions? Uh, that's it from my side too, Rajiv. Uh, it'll be nice if you could recommend us some names uh, that you would like us to file in our podcast. Hello. Yeah, Rajiv. Hello. Yeah, yeah I, I couldn't hear you. Somehow it got disconnected. Okay. Okay. Anyways, I was just uh, thanking you for giving us time today. It was uh, a pleasure talking to you. And uh, Manish wanted to ask something. Yeah, I just wanted to ask one last question, Rajiv. Uh, I was wondering if you could give us some names that you would uh, recommend us uh, so that we could profile them uh, on our podcast. I think Chetan Parekh is someone you should talk to. Uh, okay. He's someone who's uh, typically not in the media. A lot of other people, uh, you generally uh, yeah. come across them sure. and... Uh, Sure. Uh, Anil Kumar Tulsiram is someone again who would be interesting to listen to. Right, he's a friend. I'm sure he'll say yes. Mm-hmm. On the contrary, he he says that it's very difficult for me to give on the spot answers. But uh, but yeah, I'll talk to uh, Anil. Yes, so a lot of people, so again, I'm not giving you names you uh, regularly see in the media because then uh, it's one more... Uh, yeah, it's just another interview which thing, we don't yeah. want anyways. Yeah, so yes. that is not the intent. So mm-hmm. great, great, Rajiv. Thanks a lot. Uh, any other suggestions you have for us uh, before we call it a day? No, well, I think uh, you are doing great work, and it's always interesting to uh, listen to people who one doesn't usually get a chance to listen to, and it's good fun. <laughs> great. Thanks a lot, Rajiv. Right, so, Rajiv. so let's let's catch up next time when I'm in Bombay. I'll definitely come sooner. Sure. Sure. Do drop by. Yep. Thanks, Rajiv. Thanks for your time, Rajiv. Have a good day. You're welcome. Bye. Bye.